0: You can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. As many of you will know, when I've been preaching, been working through this book, 1 Samuel, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We come to chapter 7 today. We'll look at verse 3 through 17. The end of the chapter. The NASB entitles uh, this section, Israel Saved from the Philistines. Um, If you're visiting, I just I say all this because I want you to know. um, I'm not preaching this text because of what's going on in the world. I've been working through 1 Samuel bit by bit, chapter by chapter, verse. By verse, though the word Palestine derives from Philistine, I'm simply picking up where I left off before uh, the massacre on October 7. And I'll say as well that um, my my duty is not so much to interpret uh, current events, but the Holy Scriptures, and that's what I intend to do this morning, to preach my own views on things, but to preach God's Word and and to declare not the news, but the good news of Jesus Christ. And I trust that God in his word will help us, and will help us see clearly about things, and to prioritize what is most important. And here's the message I think we see in this passage. We must repent of idolatry, And cry out for rescue to see God's helping hand restore us. You see, Israel, in this period of their history, they're a broken nation. They're broken in terms of their conflicts with those around them. They're they're broken in terms of their religious establishment. By now, in in the book where we're at, Their priests have died. They were corrupt priests. We've seen broken families in the family of Hannah. And they even lost the Ark of the Covenant in battle when their priests were killed. But brothers and sisters, even during such a broken period of their history, hope was not lost, though the replica of God's throne was captured, that being the ark, his established sure throne in heaven was unshaken. And as the ark went into the land of the Philistines, God glorified his own name and humbled them through acts of judgment until eventually they said, enough, we need to get the ark out of here. We need to send it back to Israel, which is what by now they have just done. And yet the truth is that the Philistines were not the only ones practicing idolatry, needing humbling, needing a clearer picture of the holiness of God. God's own people then, Israel, Israel needed to turn from idolatry. Israel needed to be humbled. Israel needed to forsake sin, to bow before a holy God and to look to Him alone for grace. And only in so doing could a broken people be restored. Only in so doing could they experience God's hand of blessing. We must repent of idolatry and cry out for rescue to see God's helping hand restore us. So I'm going to work through this passage really in three sections. First, there is a call for repentance in verses three through six, then there is a cry for rescue in verse seven through eleven, and lastly, At the end, we see a cause for restoration from verse 12 through the end. Uh, As I read this first section, I'm going to go back even just a few verses into our previous chapter to give a little bit of a context. So I'll read from chapter 6, verse 19. This is what the word of the Lord says. And he, that is the Lord, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came up and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. I'm going to pause there. We'll come to the next verses later on. This is a call for repentance from Samuel. We've seen in earlier chapters, the beginning of the book, God raising up this boy, Samuel, in the house of Hannah, a woman who humbled herself and cried out to God for help. In her desperation, God heard her prayer and gave her this son, Samuel, who eventually found himself among uh, priests such as Eli, growing up there in tabernacle service. All the while, God rejected the priesthood of Eli and of his sons. And those men now, of course, have died in battle, as God predicted. They've faded off the scene. The Ark was lost. Now the Ark has been brought back. But even still, there is this awkwardness. Shiloh is done. That place where the tabernacle was, where the sacrificial system was centered at this time in their history, it is no more. There is some indication from other scriptures, not in 1 Samuel, that Shiloh was destroyed. And now they've got the ark back, And it's almost like, well, now what? What do we do with it? Well, the first thing they did is they brought it to the men of Beth Shemesh who looked at it, which they weren't supposed to do. They violated Holy Scripture, and God struck them down. And all they could say is, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And so there is this period of mourning you could say also a period of confusion. They sense something is not right. We have sinned against the holy God. Shiloh is gone. The priesthood is gone for now. What do we do? Well, Samuel, whom the Lord has been raising up for such a moment as this, he calls them to Repentance. You know, if you find yourself in an absolute mess of sin and your life is turned upside down and you are in turmoil and you are confused and you don't know which way is up, you don't know what to do next, you don't know where to go, one surefire thing that that you ought to do that I can say clearly that, that you should do, that you can be assured that is the right thing to do, Turn from your sin. Repent anything that you have done wrong to displease God. Acknowledge it before the Lord. Turn from it. Call upon His name for forgiveness. Forsake the sin. We'll look at a few points here about what real repentance looks like. I think we see some of it in these verses from three, verse 3 through 6. You see, they're lamenting, they're mourning, they're fasting. It speaks of them even pouring out water. I think that indicates that their fasting wasn't even only of food. It was of water for a time as well. They pour out water before the Lord in self-denial, it seems. And this is an act of desperation. They're confessing their sin to God. They say in verse 6, We have sinned against the Lord. And so when Samuel calls for repentance, we see in this whole situation what true, true repentance should look like, okay? And we'll say a few things about that. Real repentance begins with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow over sin. It's not merely sorrow over the consequences of sin. That's where sometimes people can get mixed up. Maybe you're sad that your boss has disciplined you for having a poor work ethic. Are you sad that you have a poor work ethic or are you sad that you've been disciplined by your boss? Or maybe... You're sad that your family found out what you've looked at online. And maybe it's not that you're sad for your lust, but you're sad that people found out about your lust. Or maybe you're sad because you have ill health that's resulted as a consequence of your sin. But it's not your sin that bothers you. It's not your sin that troubles you, that causes you to mourn. It's the health effects or it's some other consequence in your life that you just don't like. And that part makes you sad. That's not repentance. That's not godly sorrow. You see, godly sorrow is sorrow over sin itself. Sin is an offense to a holy God. They came to understand that. They came to understand something is not right in Israel. And and why is it? It's because they have sinned against a holy God. And He is angry with their sin. And judgment has hung over their heads. And they see their turmoil and the tragedy of it all. And they know that they have done wrong against the Lord. And it causes them great sorrow, such that they fast, such that they restrain themselves even from drinking water in a desperate plea for the Lord to have mercy upon them. So real repentance begins with godly sorrow. Sorrow over sin. But, But godly sorrow does not simply stay where it is. It's not enough for you to be depressed about your sin, to be sad about your sin, and to just wallow in that feeling, that emotion. Real repentance, secondly, requires both acknowledgement and abandonment of sin and idolatry. You see, Samuel notices their sorrow and he calls them to repent. He calls them to return to the Lord. To put away the gods, the foreign gods, the Asheroth that they have been worshipping. And to direct their heart toward the Lord and to serve Him. And that's what they do. It says, the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they serve the Lord only. So they They listen. It's not enough for them to stay in their sin and just feel bad about what has happened. They need to forsake it. They need to turn from it. They need to abandon it. And brothers and sisters, we need to do the same. Yeah, I've just mentioned a few examples. If you have a poor work ethic, if you're caught in lust, if you have um, lied, if you have manipulated or stolen, if you have been unkind or impatient toward loved ones, if you've done any of these things, if you have dishonored the Lord, if you've been found to have a drinking problem, any one of these things and many more, if you have been found to have sin, don't, don't merely wallow in it and be sad about it and, and, and sense your guilt and then just sit there in it. Turn from it forsake it abandon it leave it behind run away from it acknowledge it for what it is don't make excuses about it but acknowledge it confess it to the lord and abandon that sin leave it behind real repentance requires both acknowledgement and abandonment of sin we confess it and we cast it away That's what Samuel is calling these folks to. And that's what they do by the grace of God. God grants them repentance. And you know as well, I speak about us, and the reason I speak about us so plainly is because we know that God calls all people everywhere to repentance. Acts chapter 17. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple verses for you. Verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And you see there in that verse as well, the urgency of it all. They understood the urgency because they had been judged in time under God's mighty hand. Men had died in Beth Shemesh. Scriptures in the New Testament speak of a day of final judgment. Well, God will judge the world through Jesus' Son and warns and says, people everywhere need to turn from sin before Christ comes, because by then it would be too late. Turn from sin today. So real repentance requires acknowledgement and abandonment of sin. And then lastly, real repentance is accompanied by trusting in the Lord exclusively for salvation. Okay, so and these are just a few points I'm making about repentance in this first section here. But you see the emphasis on the exclusivity of the lord's worship him alone they serve the lone, the they serve the lord only they're supposed to direct their heart to him you know we're not we're not uh, going to turn from sin and then say well I'll heap up a list of good works for myself and I'll make things right. I've heard some people, they think that repentance is, well, I've quit some bad habits and now I go to the gym. I stopped drinking. I stopped, you know, swearing as much as I used to. Uh, I recycle now. Or even I go to church on Sundays now. You know, you can go to church on Sundays and not have genuinely turned from your sin and turned from idols, other sorts of idols. You can go to church on Sunday and not actually have turned to the living God in a genuine way. We're not turning from idols to our own personal greatness and self-fulfillment, because that itself is just another idol, isn't it? Or Our own self-righteousness. No, we're turning, we're doing a 180 from sin to the Lord and to Him alone. Directing our hearts to Him. And so that is the sort of genuine repentance that Samuel is calling for in this passage. That's the message for us today. Christian or non-Christian, you know, Christians still need to continue on turning from sin. You realize you've done something wrong, acknowledge it, turn from it, ask God for help to overcome it and try to walk in a way pleasing to him, trusting in his grace. But for those who are here today and and haven't repented, I plead with you. Leave it behind. Scriptures speak about idol of covetousness or, or greed pleasure, love of money, love of self. Turn from such things. Repent of them. Acknowledge them for what they are. Put them to death and come to the living God. So we've seen a call for repentance. And in the next verses from verse 7 through 11, we see a cry for rescue. This battle that occurs here has in some ways similarities with the battle in chapter 4 against the Philistines there as well. The Philistines, at this period in their history, they're really like the primary enemy. There are other enemies that Israel has had at different times before and after, but at this period, the Philistines are often the ones they are battling. And so there is a battle that happened where they lost the ark in chapter 4. And there's A parallel being drawn here, but with some clear differences. Okay, so let me read these verses. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cry Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth So there is this battle. And, and I said that there is a, some similarities and some differences to the battle in chapter 4. Okay, so in chapter 4, the battle took place, Um, the Philistines were encamped at Ebenezer. Well, that word comes up again later in our passage. And besides that, there is a battle, but the difference is, who's afraid in this battle? Well, back then, the Philistines actually were the ones who were afraid. And ironically, in this battle, the ones who were afraid are Israel. Back then, the ones who initiated the battle was, it seems, the Israelites. And in this passage, those who initiate the battle were the Philistines. And the result of the battle is different as well. Of course, where the Lord grants victory to his people here, but back in chapter 4, they lost, and they lost the ark. Tragically so. Of course, there is a difference in leadership. And there's a difference in, uh, I guess you might say, methodology. Because back then, they were being led by Eli's sons. Sinful men. Unrepentant men who had been confronted in their sin and hardened their hearts. And these men, unrepentant men, thought that they could manipulate God into granting them the victory by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And they did, and they lost, and they died. Okay? Well, here, different leadership. Samuel is here. Samuel, not an unrepentant man, but a man who calls Israel to corporate repentance and who calls them not to trust in the ark in manipulating God and granting them the victory, but to trust in the Lord for deliverance. And the result is very much different. And so, what's the lesson then for us? I mean, I don't think this passage is so much about, say, just war theory and, and so on. Yes, this is an unprovoked battle. Yes, these Jewish people go and defend, defend their families, these Jewish men go and defend their families and in innocent life and so on, but this passage isn't so much about, say, just war theory as it is a model of faith in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11 interprets battles such as these, times such as these, more broadly in a few verses It speaks about Samuel and other men like him. I'll read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 through 34. This is what it says. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, "...who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight." These men, men like, Sam, uh, men like Samuel and others in a battle such as this, in the Old Covenant context, showed their faith in the promises of God, promises where He said that if they are faithful to His covenant, that that He will grant them victory over their enemies. Yes, these men trusted in the Lord and found victory in the Lord, even putting their enemies to flight, as we see in our passage. And so this is a model of faith, brothers and sisters. They cry for rescue. This second section, as I said, is, is a cry for rescue. And it is a cry which is heard from heaven. And God, in accordance with His Word, He sees the repentance of His people, the faith of His people. They are trusting in Him. They are relying in Him for salvation. And He grants deliverance from heaven in accordance with promises such as in Deuteronomy 28 and so on. And so what do we then make of this for our own application? Well, I'm not going to make a one-to-one correlation with current events, but what we do know in the New Testament is that the apostles will say our warfare, our wrestling, is not against flesh and blood. Or they'll say, as Christians, we're not waging war according to the flesh, but we're fighting by proclaiming the gospel, and we're praying that the power of God might be manifest in saving the lost. Our enemy is not physical, but is spiritual, primarily. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. We're all aware of the spiritual warfare passages. And we understand that we need the Lord's help to grant victory over the enemies we have in our context. Satan and his lies. Anti-Christian messages which deceive the nations. We want to see all brought into subjection to Christ and, and we need the Lord's help by His Spirit to empower our witness, to give us boldness, to help conform our lives To his will, to subject ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we trust in his promises. We run from sin. We cry out for his help. And and be sure, brothers and sisters, that your heavenly Father is delighted to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He's delighted. To grant victory over sin by the power of his spirit to those who ask. And so we should cry out for help. I've I've talked about sins which might ensnare you. Maybe they've already pricked your conscience, and you wonder, what am I to do with this? I've tried. I've tried to to turn from it. And here it is again. You need help from on high. You need the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. You need to cry out to God in heaven for victory over your sin, to put it to death. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the freedom and the grace required is found in the Lord. And so we must ask for His help. Cry out for His rescue. We must repent of idolatry and cry out for rescue to see God's helping hand restore us. And so we've seen this call for repentance. We've seen a cry for rescue. And lastly, in these last verses from verse 12 through 17, we see a cause for restoration. They've repented. They've cried to the Lord for help. And now we see a time where, at least in part, Restoration is coming among God's people there in Israel. Let me read from verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel Gilgal and Mizpah and he judged Israel in all these places then he would return to Ramah for his home was there and there also he judged Israel and he built there an altar to the Lord so this summarizes the result of this time the the result of Samuel Leading the people to repentance. Leading the people to trust in the Lord, in Him alone. The result is they're experiencing restoration, at least in part. You know, you'd be tempted almost to call this a revival, but I don't know what you call it a revival this side of Pentecost, okay? So maybe not a revival, but there is a turning to the Lord. There is a trusting in the Lord happening here. A work of God among his people. And they're experiencing peace and righteousness in the land. And even his blessing, his grace in ways that were not true beforehand. And their brokenness is being, at least in part, healed because they've turned to the Lord and repented of their sin. There's a few different things described there. There's the fact that the Philistines were not, again, entering their territory. They've received land back. I use the word restored because that word is used in verse 14. And it speaks even of peace between Israel and the Amorites. The Amorites are like one of the Canaanite groups that was there before they even came. Uh, Evil people. They they experience peace with this wicked people. The Amorites. Perhaps the Amorites see the blessing of God and the victory that he has provided his people, and they want nothing to do with warfare with, with, um, with Israel there. But there's peace somehow. And... There is, a, you might say, an increased righteousness among them in that Samuel is traveling from place to place, judging, providing leadership, providing governance, and lastly, leading them back to right worship of the Lord. He, he builds an altar there to the Lord. That, that's sort of a description of everything that's going on there in the nation at the time. And this is something that they rejoice in. They, they set up this stone. And he calls it Ebenezer. Uh, translation, stone of help. And he says, till now the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us. And I think he has in mind tracing back everything that has happened, most especially, I think, in those recent years. You see God at work in his family with Hannah and his birth, and then God bringing judgment upon a wicked religious institution which is dishonoring his name and unrepentant sin. And you might say, well, it doesn't look like God's helping at the time. God tearing down what was going on at Shiloh and having those men die in battle and many lost in battle and the ark disappearing from Israel into foreign hands. You might say, well, it doesn't look like God is helping when when those sorts of things are going on, right? When people have lost loved ones when people have had their faith perhaps shaken because they don't understand what's going on with the ark and why God didn't give them victory, well, the Lord is at work helping them. And he was at work raising up this man for such a time to bring repentance, to proclaim the truth of his word. And he's helping them in preparing them even, as we'll see later, for a king, as promised beforehand. He's helped them in a number of ways. And they can can look back at all these things, some of them very distressing, all that that's happened, and they can say, God has helped us till now. And I hope, brother or sister, you can look back at your life, the good and the bad, the tumultuous and... The perhaps the easier times, all the sorrows and all the strife. And you can look back and you can you can see what God has done, and you can say, Till now, God has helped me. He's brought me through the worst of it. He's saved me from my sin. Look at me, a wretch, a sinner. You know, I, I thought about how much to share for my own life, and there's certain things that I probably shouldn't share but at least not in this public way but i look back at my life i look at the context that the lord saved me from and i think man someone probably would have looked at me unconverted as a child and thought what a poor child what a wretch and god saved me and god helped me have victory over my sin. And God brought me through that. And He called me as His own. And He put me in a church. And He brought me eventually here through many troubles and trials along the way. And I'm thankful. And I say, till now, the Lord has helped me. And I don't need a list for you, all the things that have happened. I mean, I'm happy to talk more personally about some of these things. But, but we should each be able to look back and we should remember and we should look at our lives and say, God has shown me grace. He has saved me. He has heard my cries for help, for rescue. And He has answered and He has saved. And all praise be to His name. For what he has done. And you know we don't necessarily set up stones that are going to stand there for a while. We have the Lord's Supper to remember the work of Christ by. You know we share our testimonies often. We come into membership or are baptized. Um, and those are fitting places to, to do this sort of thing. But you know brothers and sisters we should share with each other what the Lord has done. To encourage each other in personal conversation. Sometimes you can't say things so publicly that you could say in personal conversation and say, this is how God granted me victory over my sin. Through faith in Him, by the help of His Holy Spirit. This is how God set me free from it. And this is how He has helped me thus far. So we see that, and we see restoration. And there is, though not a perfect and Permanent restoration here. There is restoration going on. And you know, you, you turn from sin and you trust in Christ. And the Lord does, does a, a blessing of, as it says in Acts 3, which I read earlier, times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Until the complete restoration comes when Christ returns. When all of it's done. All of the sin, all of the suffering, all of the the warfare, all of the turmoil, it's over. And there is peace and there is righteousness in in a perfect way, in a lasting way, in a permanent way. There's no more sin in a permanent and perfect way. That's the sort of restoration we're hoping for. But, But even now, we can experience a bit of a taste of that. We turn from sin and we trust in the living God and we cry out to him for help, he hears from heaven. Our pleas for grace, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Scripture says. And you know, in Samuel, there hasn't been really much said negatively about Samuel. But we understand he's not a perfect man. We understand that Samuel is going to die. It implies that in the fact that it says all the days of his life. Well, his life is not going to last forever. This man fades off the scene, eventually. And so this is not a permanent thing they experience. But we see in Samuel a bit of a picture of Christ. In that, here's a man who is righteous, who intercedes for his people in a a priestly sort of capacity. He was indeed a Levite. He offers sacrifice for them. And he governs, though not a king... He'll soon introduce the king. Not a king, he governs this people. He's a judge, the last, really, of the judges. And Samuel, likewise, is a prophet. He preaches God's word to these people. He calls them to repent. And we know that our Lord Jesus Christ is prophet, he is priest, he is king. And he intercedes on our behalf in heaven. And the sacrifice He offers is not a young lamb for His own sin and the sin of that nation. No, Jesus offers Himself for us. His own blood to reconcile us to God and to, as we read earlier, grant us peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. He brings Jew and Gentile. You might say Philistine and Jew. You might say those who are barbarians and those who are Scythians, as it says in the New Testament, those who do barbaric things, he brings them, he saves them, he cleans them up, he, he makes them his own. And then he unites them with others. And he joins them together in the church. You see, Ephesians 2 speaks about how God has brought peace between Jew and Gentile, bringing them into one body so that they're... Fellow citizens, fellow heirs, partakers together of the promise, sharing together because they've all been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They've been joined as one body. That's what the church is. And one body which awaits the hope of a promised inheritance. And and, you know, that's not merely Canaan. Scripture says we're going to inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. Romans chapter 4 verse 13 speaks about heirs of of the world. Or Hebrews chapter 11. A heavenly country. Jew and Gentile united together as the body of Christ in the church. That's what we're looking forward to. God has helped each of us. God has brought each of us out of our sin. Washed us by the blood of his son. Cleansed us joined us together to have peace. Peace different than even that of the Amorites had with Israel here. A better peace than that because it lasts and it's peace through Christ around the gospel. And you know, brothers and sisters, with everything that's happening in our world today, this is the message we need to proclaim. This is what we need to pray for. That this gospel of peace might be made known. That God might bring people, Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue together into one body, that is the church, and grant peace through the blood of His Son. A peace which we understand will only find its perfect and permanent fulfillment when Christ returns, but nonetheless, a peace which starts now through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we hope for. That's what we yearn for. God's restoring work so we must repent now cry out for rescue to see God's helping hand restore us let's close in a word of prayer oh God how we need your grace we thank you for your work in history there in Israel They cried out to you. You heard from heaven. You helped them. You brought them through such a time. And you have brought us through times as well and have granted grace from on high. Our sin, our suffering, our sorrow, you've brought us through. And by your help, we stand here saved, your people saved, from our sin. We thank you for that. And Lord, again, we ask those who have yet to be saved, those who have yet to be helped in this way, that they might experience peace through Christ your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen. We're going to close with, I think, a song which is fitting.